Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're back this week with guest hosts for Spirit in Action from the Climate Changed podcast coming to us out of Portland, Maine, courtesy of the BTS Center and the incredible talents of Peterson Toscano. While Peterson and I are both Quakers, the mainstays behind the Climate Changed podcast are from a range of denominations and religions. Part of what I so appreciate about this podcast is that it is firmly rooted in spirituality and is less tempted than most away from the spirit and departs per million absorption. Don't get me wrong, science is important to me, even vital, in terms of dealing with climate crisis because it provides the what and how, but spirituality is what provides the why of what we need to do. I'll let Peterson Toscano, Nicole Deroff, Ben Joshua Davis, and their guests fill in the why of climate change. Take it away, Peterson. Thank you, Mark. Today, you're going to hear a powerful conversation. The host of Climate Change Podcast spoke with Dr. Varanis Miles. Varanis is a preacher, teacher, scholar, mentor, and artist committed to a life of ministry in the church and in the academy. And she has a revolutionary way of speaking about hope. And not as an emotion that can come or go. Rather, hope as a spiritual resource we can summon from within. For this episode, she is answering the question, if I can't make a difference, then what do I do? You're going to hear that in a moment. But first, I want to share with you what you can expect from Season 2 of the Climate Changed Podcast. I don't know about you, Nicole, but it feels good to be back behind the mic. And so it begins. Season 2 of Climate Changed Podcast featuring Ben Yashua Davis and Nicole Deeroff. Well, I'm so glad this podcast has included voices from both near and far. I'm Peter Santoscano, the producer of Climate Changed. Nicole and Ben have a new season for you. I have spent many hours in the editing room, so I can confirm that the season will be filled with deep, moving, and honest conversations. They and their guests do not shy away from the challenges of addressing climate change. They're also not afraid to hope. With guests like Dr. Keisha McKenzie, they ask deep questions. What can I influence? What is my contribution? What is my best gift to the collective that I care about? How can we grow? They explore humanity, loss, and forgiveness with Indigenous practitioner Ray Buckley. We would say that for a person to be a human being, which is the word both in Clinkett and Lakota, those words mean human being. For us to be a human being means that we live in a correct balance of relationship with the Creator, God, the people uh, around us, those people who walk, who are human beings, but also in all of creation. They feature Shannon Shaw, a British Muslim leader and the director of Faith for the Climate. 
Your conversation looks at ancient traditions and modern community building strategies. You know, this thing about vision, what do you want the world to be? One of them said, but how do we go through this, this story? It's so despairing when we think about climate, you know, there's so much despair and how, how do we do this as churches? I was kind of flippant. I said, hello, we are going into Holy Week now. This is when your savior gets tried and condemned and crucified, right? What are yes. you telling me you don't know what despair is? He gets crucified. Yes. But then there is the resurrection. And perhaps most importantly, they feature guests who help us seriously consider what on earth we can do with a problem as big and thorny as climate change. Guests like Dr. Susie Mosier, a scientist and climate adaptation expert. In climate change, I get that question all the time. What can I do? What can I do? I'm just this little person, you know, and this problem is so big. My answer used to be giving them a whole list of things that could do, you know, behavior changes in the in the household or political activities like going to vote or engaging at the local level. These days, I ask people, what do they love doing? I ask them, how did they want to be in the community and how do they connect? And Quaker author and environmental activist Eileen Flanagan. There's a concept that I often teach called the four roles of social change that is based on research into what makes movements effective. One step is for people to figure out what kind of realm they want to work in, but also who they want to work with. The four roles are the helper, the advocate, the organizer, and the rebel. And Deborah Reinstra, author of the book Refugia Faith, seeking hidden shelters, ordinary wonders, and the healing of the earth. Small is not insignificant. And I think that's another thing that people find encouraging about their whole refugia concept is that it makes that small space that you feel you can be a part of and manage, it makes that not insignificant. There's always the potential to connect and to grow. One theme you will hear throughout season two is a move away from individual action to community-based actions. Artist Rob Shetterly, who often paints solo portraits of people who tell the truth, reflects on the importance of working in groups. That kind of vision it, it is not about you know a hero yeah. at all. It's about a collective of people who understand that sometimes the common good can only be protected by the common people. They have to do it themselves, and the more they are that are willing to take that risk of being part of that, the stronger they are. Also joining Ben and Nicole is author Margaret Wheatley. For 50 years, she has prepared leaders to effectively lead in a world that is rife with conflicts and troubles. The first thing is, it's all insufficient. It's never enough. We just have to live with that constant sense of sorrow that we can't have more impact. 
but we can't. But we can turn to where we do have impact. We can create the conditions so people rediscover what it means to be a fully functioning human being rather than a scared human animal in survival need. That work is abundant. I mean, it's if you just get your group together and ask them not what's wrong, but what's possible. In season two of the Climate Change Podcast, Ben Yashua Davis and Nicole Deeroff will help you take an unflinching look at the devastating reality of climate change. Not to scare the snot out of us. No, they and their amazing guests balance an honest view of the problems with clear direction about how we can take up our roles in this rapidly changing world. Climate Changed Podcast is a project of the BTS Center in beautiful Portland, Maine. Season 2 begins September 26, 2023. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts or visit thebtscenter.org. You are listening to Climate Changed, a podcast about pursuing faith, life, and love in a climate-changed world. Hosted by me, Nicole Deeroff. And me, Ben Yashua Davis. Climate Changed features guests who deepen the conversation while also stirring the waters. The Climate Changed podcast is a project of the BTS Center. So Nicole, in the conversation we're going to hear in a little bit, there's going to be a lot of talk about hope, which made me curious... What have you done to practice hope recently? Mm. So I'm going to tell you about something that my family is practicing around the dinner table. This idea actually came from a family meeting that I called, where we actually loosely followed a workshop that Peterson, our producer of this podcast, offered. We identified the things we really cared about as a family thought about how climate change might affect those things, and decided to choose something to work on. We came to the fact that we really love sharing food and hosting other people in our home. So one of the things we decided to do out of that passion was get some reusable napkins. When we set the table for our guests, we have these kind of funky bamboo napkins that people engage with, and it's been this amazing opportunity to have a conversation Mm. about what's going on related to climate. So it feels simple, but it's ritual every time we sit down at the table, every time we set the table, and it helps us talk about it, which is this message that feels really important these days, just to find ways to start the conversation. When I find myself starting to lose contact with hope, I start thinking local. And so I do a lot of work on housing on the island where I live. 
That is a very literal thing. We we bought what was literally the most disgusting house on the island. It smelled so bad you could smell it from 15 feet away. It uh. took us six months <laughs> in gas masks and bunny suits before we could begin normal demolition. And I have I have so many stories that I am not going to share with you in this <laughs> space about what I discovered in that place. But I find the act of you know spending my weekdays thinking about the very deep difficulties facing Western civilization. And then on the weekends, hanging sheetrock or running cable is just really wonderful. This is also true in the volunteer work that I do where um, I spend time working on the sustainable housing crisis on our island and helping empower people to say, yes, there's something we can do about this. Communities mm. can take control of the houses and the people who live there. They don't just have to be enslaved to market forces. And that has been tremendously hopeful work um, as you begin to see kind of the energy from the community begin to um, begin to emerge in response to this very deep need and this incredible opportunity. Mm, I love that. Sometime, Ben, I'll come to the island to visit this house and bring my reusable napkins for a dinner that we can share there. <laughs> That's right. I wouldn't recommend doing that right now. Right now, I would uh, recommend bringing your reusable work boots. <laughs> uh, ben, what else can you tell us as we get started here about what's coming up in today's episode? So in a moment, you will hear my conversation with the Reverend Dr. Veronis Miles. Dr. Miles is a preacher's preacher as well as a tremendous thinker. She is an associate professor of preaching at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. She has an incredible understanding of hope, both born out of her work as a theologian and her experience as an African-American woman. I think more than just about anyone I've talked to, she gets hope and she gets despair and she gets what both of them mean in this climate change moment. Wow. In these times when we can feel so overwhelmed, it sounds like Dr. Miles fits right in with the conversations we have been having here on Climate Changed. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I can't wait to hear more. Before we listen to your conversation, though, let's take a moment to center, as we always do on this podcast. And to help us with this centering, I'd like to introduce Aram Mitchell, a colleague of ours. And here is Aram with Flood on the Horizon. Wherever you might be looking or whatever you might be thinking about, take your focus and plop it out on the horizon. Right now, if you're scrolling through the headlines or washing dishes or making breakfast or folding laundry or checking emails, if you're able, shift your focus from the immediate thing and place it elsewhere. If there's a window nearby, or perhaps you're already outdoors, as you're able, cast your gaze out as far as it'll go and imagine yourself on a path. You've labored long to arrive where you are in this precise spot. Behind you lies the residue of your previous labor, the remaining ache of having struggled to adapt and change, the swirling dust of uncertainty and, and of new discoveries. And in front of you, in the direction you're heading, the path stretches long, and it climbs a hill and then takes a turn beyond where you can possibly see or know. Now, bring your attention back to the way that you are looking. 
whether with your eyes or in your imagination. And again, shift your focus from the immediate thing. Lift your focus from that precise place where the path disappears into a point on the horizon. Relax the muscles in your face, the strain behind your eyes, and soften your gaze so that you can take in the full spread of the world around you, so that you can sense the things in your periphery. Let those peripheral things take shape. Let all of your senses tune in. You're not alone. Where you stand or sit right now is a place where many paths connect and flow together. And at this confluence of many peopled paths, no matter how much you've ached getting here, your aches are no longer yours alone to bear. And at this confluence, no matter what you've discovered on your way, your discoveries are no longer yours alone to celebrate. At this confluence, all of our efforts and all of our hopes flow together. And with them, we will flood the horizon. Thank you, Aram. Ben, before we hear what you and Dr. Miles spoke about, is there anything else you'd like to say about her or the conversation? Yeah. First off, I'd just like to let you know that she said to refer to her as Veronis for our conversation. And I thought this might be a really heady conversation since she's written an entire book on hope. But instead, we had this deeply textured conversation about her experience of this moment we're in and how the dynamics of despair and hope play out for everyday people. I could have sat at her feet all day, but instead I'll be giving you our best 20 or so minutes. Perfect. Okay, here's a conversation between Ben and Reverend Dr. Veronis Miles. When you meet people for the first time and they ask, what do you do? Uh, what do you say? I tell them that I'm a teacher, that I teach in a theological school, and that I teach preaching. Often I will say I teach homiletics. I teach both the study and practice of preaching. Wonderful. What are the identities that are important to you? Hmm. I am a an African-American woman. I am a African-American Christian woman. I'm a scholar, I'm a teacher, I'm a preacher, I'm an auntie, I'm a sister, friend, confident, mentor. All of that's important to me. Mm. So I know a lot of your work engages with the idea of culturally induced despair. Could you share with us more about what you mean by culturally induced despair and maybe tell us a story from your own life that illustrates what it looks like when it's manifest in our day-to-day -day lives. If I can do the second part first, that would be great. Then I'll come to the culturally induced despair. I am from the state of Florida. And I remember uh, several years ago when the climate change conversation 
kind of hit the broader public dialogue. And there were all of these, uh, all of this conversation about rising temperatures, polar ice caps, melting, um, the um, pollution in the air, destruction of the ozone layer. And my initial thought was, oh, that's a really terrible thing and we should do something about that. Um, and the other thought was, I sure would like to see an iceberg before all of the icebergs melt away, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I remembered that I lived in the state of Florida, this peninsula that sits out in the Atlantic Ocean and began to think about what are the implications of what's happening with the climate and this place where I live and other places like it. And it occurred to me that there might not be a Miami Beach, for example, and that there was a good possibility that Gainesville, Florida, which is where I'm from, uh, which is in north central Florida, could end up being the beach area for Florida. And it, it seems extreme, right? But it was kind of that moment of waking up and, and noticing that there is something significant about all of this for the life that I live and for the life that many people live, uh, which then pushed me to think about what are the implications for this in other places in the world. So when we think about culturally induced despair, that whole experience could have taken me in a number of directions, one of which would have been to say the problem is too large. There's nothing that we can do about it. What will happen will happen and we'll just deal with it. You know, we'll move further north in the United States and hope that that will be okay. Not thinking at all about the climate impact in other parts of the country. And so culturally induced despair is this notion that what exists in the present must always exist, that there's nothing that we can do to change the state of our existence. So we might as well continue to do what we're doing. And so why then be attentive to the way that we're polluting the air? Because there's nothing that we can do about that. Um, why be attentive to the damage that we're doing to waterways or to the rise in temperatures in the earth? Because there's nothing that we can do about it. We'll worry about it when we get there. And that gets reinforced with this idea that to do something may require us to give up too much. And these are things to which we are so attached and are so necessary in our lives that it is not worth it to try to change the situation. Culturally induced despair grows out of these subtle, uh, sometimes overt, but often subtle messages that we get that tell us that the current state of affairs is what will be, or that things are going to get worse, 
And there's nothing much that we can do about mm. it. I think that this is such an important concept. In part, I, I, I was just reflecting as you were sharing it how insidious this is. It is. And the way that it also it it's it's a it's a means by which our society has decided not to change. There's nothing we can do, so might as well shop at Amazon till the world burns. And uh and I'm 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 noting as well, and I think you you point this out really well, how there is kind of there is a there is a moral character to that decision, and I think oftentimes people don't think of despair as being a, a kind of about making a, a moral choice. But this thought of I would shoot, I would rather despair than give up the life that I have grown accustomed to. Absolutely, and it leads to a kind of what I call imaginative dearth, this dearth of imagination where we're not able to envision the possibility of anything other than what we see right now. And in fact, in our society, uh, or at least I believe this to be true, that we are dissuaded from imagining new things or for it. We're, we're convinced that the best that we can do is rearrange what currently exists. But to imagine something that is absolutely new is almost taboo. And you can hear the outrage, right? You hear it in the news reporting. You hear it, unfortunately, from the church. You hear it in, from those in power who, if there's something new, it will absolutely destroy the world or destroy our way of being. And so we can't do that and can't. Uh, impossible uh, are all uh, manifestations of imaginative dearth, which grows out of this kind of despairing notion toward reality. And so for people of faith, yes, there is a moral and ethical component to it, because if we say that we, that we serve, that we reverence, that we are connected to a God who cares about creation, the creator of this earth, as we like to say in our mythical story, the one in whose image we are formed, the one whose breath vivifies us, then there are moral and ethical implications to who we are and what it means to live as a part of God's creation. Stay tuned for more of this conversation. In the next half, you're going to hear a radically new way of looking at hope. Break time for Spirit in Action and the Climate Change podcast. Peterson, Ben, and Nicole will be back with their guests in a moment. But I wanted to remind you of some of the what, why, and how of Spirit in Action and Northern Spirit Radio. We do Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul weekly, and you can find all of our programs, info, stations where we're broadcast, and more on our website, northernspiritradio.org, and that's a perfect place to post comments with your feedback and connections. And while there, we invite you to make our media sustainable and responsive. Donate to Northern Spirit Radio because we provide a valuable window in the world healing for the good of the world, not for profit and out of obligation. 
And the same could be said of the 35 to 45 stations where our shows are broadcast. Community radio stations that are serving the community right down at the roots. Donate from your hands and your wallet and get news and music that serves your needs transparently. Right now, back to guest host Peterson Toscano for more riches. You are listening to Climate Change here on Spirit in Action. It's a conversation between Ben Yashua Davis and Dr. Veronis Miles. Joining Ben in a moment also will be Nicole Deeroff, and you will get practical next steps that you can take. One of the things that really distresses me sometimes in climate conversations, for instance, the only thing that we can imagine is doing the same thing that we've we've done since eternity, which really only means like since, you know, 50 years ago, better and better and, and better or more efficiently, rather than saying, how is God calling us to form Christian community in response to this moment that we're in? Yeah, when we all those kinds of dispositions, right, when we're holding on so tightly to these structures that we've created, it diminishes our capacity then to not only notice what's happening to the earth or the environment, but to notice the people who are most disaffected by what's happening uh, in our world. And so we're, we're not able to look beyond our kind of narrow understanding of what it means to be church and really embrace what I believe to be Jesus's ministry in the earth and what I believe to be what God had been trying to do all along. Because if we kind of trace what happens in biblical theology, right? Every sense from the beginning, God places us human beings into this beautifully created world with hopes that we will emulate something of God's love and care and concern for the earth. And when we, when we, when we disrupted that, I, and, and this is a, a very simplified way of saying this, but it seems that what God has been trying to do through the ages is to call us back to a sense of who we were intended to be and to the moral and ethical responsibility we have to each other, to one another, and to the larger created order. And so it says something about this kind of mutuality that we are called to have with each other as we are loving one another. And so we can't afford to just kind of put on blinders and say that my neighbor is only the people in my congregation, only the people in my community, but the world is our neighbor. And if we were to personify um, the earth and the environment, um, which I feel like we almost have to do, then the earth becomes our neighbor as well, who is, is in need of the same care, compassion, concern, um, that we have for one another. Mm. You mentioned uh, imagination and hope. And I wanted to ask you about hope in particular, because the role of hope mm-hmm. is actually a genuinely controversial one right now, especially in climate circles. You have done a lot of reflecting and and writing about hope. And 
I, I definitely hear this as something that's been connected with with your journey and your yeah. and your practice throughout. So let me ask, what is hope if it's not optimism? And why do you believe it's crucial for the moment we're in? We've either talked about hope as living in anticipation of heaven. Uh, that's what we've done in Christian circles. So we live in anticipation of the ultimate return of Christ. And while I don't disagree that we can live in anticipation of that, I don't believe that that is all that scripture points us to. Or we have these ideas that hope and optimism or wishing or wishful thinking or fantasizing something that is not practical, um, that that is how we speak about hope. So I wanted to take seriously that hope is a basic human capacity that each of us have as human beings. And we have that not because we go and get it from somewhere, but we have that as um, we have that because we are created in the image of God. So when I talk about hope, then I want to talk about hope as that which creates in each of us a yearning for wholeness and well-being. And some would say the shalom of God, right? It is the always speaking voice of God's spirit assuring us of God's presence, power, and fidelity, and calling us toward loving, just, and restorative action in the world. And so there are a few things that are kind of wrapped up in that, right? I, it is an incarnational kind of understanding of hope, that hope is within us. It's not something that we go and get from a place out there somewhere. It's not even something that is motivated by whether or not things are well in this moment or terrible in this moment. It's always interesting when I'm listening to um, to newscasts and conversations, and in one moment, there's hope, and in the next moment, there's no hope, and in the next moment, there's hope. And it is a really fickle way of thinking about hope. But if hope is that which resonates within us, then the challenge for us is to amplify that voice and to eliminate or at least interrupt the distortion of culturally induced despair, which we talked about earlier. So what is the human response then to this voice that is continually speaking within us? Our response is to live with hope. It is to say yes to God's yes for our lives and for creation by lending our hands then to this loving, just, and restorative work to which we are being called. And so we are required and have to make a decision to live with hope. And hope is that something within that keeps tugging us, that keeps reminding us, that keeps nudging us that things really can be different from the way that they are right now. We really can do something other than what we're doing in this moment. And what often happens is we talk ourselves out of responding to the voice of hope, right? 
the problem is too large. I'll do it when I have more money, more time, when I've accomplished these things. Uh, I'm too deeply embedded in the current system. I benefit too much from what already exists that I'm not sure that I can advocate for anything different. I don't get any direct benefit from it. And so why should I be concerned about all of this? And that all goes back to my earlier comments about, you know, loving God and loving neighbor and the ethical and moral responsibility that grows out of uh, just this idea that we claim ourselves as created in the image of a creating God. Mm -hmm. I love this reframing of hope as yearning, um, hope as as practice, as you named, you know, part of your identity and social location is as an African-American woman, as a preacher. Um, and I know that means that you, of course, have grown up within communities that have experienced ongoing intersectional generational trauma. And I'm curious then, what have you learned from the context of your own tradition about what it means to practice hope? Yes, I'm, I'm going to um, make a shameless plug for, for my book at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, in the last chapter of, of Embodied Hope, and, and it, this is part of um, why I think talking about hope as something other than optimism, which often, or wishing, which often looks for an immediate response to the problem um, is important. And so in that final chapter, I write about um, the African-American experience of struggle for freedom and liberation. And I actually begin with um, indigenous peoples of, uh, of the Americas, um, Native Americans in this country, and kind of walk through that history up to, to the present. And what I'm talking about is what does it mean to sustain hope over a long period of time, even when it seems that that for which you hope will not come to fruition in your lifetime. And so when you talk about resiliency, there is certainly a kind of resiliency that is necessary to sustain hope over a period of time as a community, not just as an individual, but as a community. So I am aware that my enslaved ancestors hoped for a future that they were pretty sure they would not see for themselves, but they imagined my generation into the present moment. And each generation passed on that imagining to the next generation, even as all of the horrible and horrific things were happening. And so during the, the post-emancipation era, during the Jim Crow era, you know, we had what seemed to be a little uh, period of solace right after post-emancipation. At least some people did because it was not um, that wonderful space for, for very impoverished enslaved people who did not have the kinds of resources that they needed to make 
a life for themselves. Um, and that dream of a different kind of future gets passed on from generation to generation. So when I think about my grandparents, um, my great, great grandparents and aunts and uncles, and I hear stories about them and the lives that they lived. And even my mother's generation, all along, they're encouraging us towards something that they don't know a thing about themselves, but they believe is an absolute possibility for the next generation and for the next generation. We have a responsibility then to pass that on. And I think I very much came to know that in my family and in my worship community. Those of us who understand ourselves as Christian people of faith, it is important, I've mentioned this before, but to take seriously what I think is Jesus's most elemental teaching, which is to love God with our total being, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus draws it from the law, which means that it is a basic and foundational teaching in the Hebrew law as well. And so it is a thread that runs through the biblical canon and into the present moment. Um, Post-Jesus's time, you read um, people like James and um, in First John, and you can see that thread continuing to thread through. There's no reason for me to believe that we weren't intended then to live into that teaching as a central part of who we are as people of faith today. Mm. Veronis, that was that was really wonderful. I'm so thankful for you and for just the wonderful, contextual, grounded, theologically thoughtful ways that we've engaged with this topic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ben, thank you so much for sharing that conversation with us. I wonder if we might talk about a couple of the themes that came up in that conversation. For me, the first one to talk about is despair. I just found that Veronis was able to help me understand my own sense of despair in particular, when she spoke about this sense of, I benefit from already what's existing too much to to change. That just really resonated for me at an individual level, individual choices that we make. There's like a bazillion moments in my day where I really appreciate where technology has brought us, where having access to electric power in the way that we do really helps me out. And I feel like Veronis spoke to this in a way that brought it from just the individual to the societal level, where our society is benefiting too much from what already exists to think about changing it. And I think the person I'd love to bring into this conversation is Catherine Hayhoe. She is a climate scientist, an educator, an evangelical Christian 
and a Texan. She has a really well-watched TED Talk and within the past year came out with a book called Saving Us, which I read just a couple months ago. The piece that actually stood out to me the most in what Catherine Hayhoe wrote in her book was her idea that indeed we are more fearful of the solutions to climate change than actually what we're understanding the climate impacts might be, which for many of us feel like they're far away, whether that's in geography or time. So Catherine says, the way around this is to find spaces to talk about climate change, to talk about the things we care about and make the connections between what we care about and climate change and invite action within our networks of friends and family on what people already care about. We can't be telling people, you care about the wrong things. We need to say, yes, we honor what you care about. And there are ways in which climate solutions will actually make that better rather than worse. I loved where Varanis went in terms of talking about hope within the context of despair Mm. and imagination and the way in which she sees hope as a, as a constant yearning that is not something we get from an external source, but is something that we tap into that's already inherent in us. She had this line of, Hope is tapping back into the way in which God is constantly calling us back to who we were intended to be. Mm. Shifting, we need to shift from talking about an individual sense of salvation, of I'm going to do my best things to win the right prizes to get into some heaven as an individual. We must come to a place where our communities of faith are preaching and modeling and imagining a collective liberation that's about humanity and the more than human world that's about here and now, about creating heaven in this place where we are. At the BTS Center, we have been engaging the work of Rob Hopkins and his book, From What Is to What If. We led a book study on this book, and Rob is really talking about the ways in which humans are inherently imaginative, speaks of it in a really beautiful way, and names our times as a time when we most need to tap into this imaginative capacity. And he steps through the many ways in which our imaginative capacities are being limited right now. We took up this invitation and invited churches to share with us an idea for a project they'd like to engage in in their community. It was less about a dream they had that they're going to make come into fruition. It was more about how are you going to inspire your community to imagine? to tap into their imaginative capacities. We worked with a handful of congregations on their projects and their ideas. One of them took the outdoor space in front of their church, which they were starting to use more and more because COVID was asking them to be outside more than inside. 
they started experimenting. They had a chalkboard that said, what could we use this space for? And people started putting ideas down. And then they just tried them in a pop-up kind of way. So they did a pop-up labyrinth. They put up a very temporary meditative walking labyrinth. And they put up a pop-up garden. They invited people to bring all their potted plants to leave tomatoes from their gardens out for people to share, imagining what if this space was a communal garden or what if this space was a contemplative practice space for the entire community and not only members of this church. Those sorts of what-if invitations are a space that that we want to just foster, that we want to just treat as the most fertile soil for these times. I think this is actually a great moment to talk about what's next. How can people engage in hopeful imagination in response to what they've heard from this conversation? So one of the things Veranis talks about in terms of addressing this collective despair is actually just to simply inform ourselves more about what is going on with the climate crisis so that we feel like we can have conversations with our family and friends. And I want to recommend a book that I read a couple years ago now that has been really helpful to me in understanding what is going on. It's a book by author Hope Jaron called The Story of More. In this book, she walks through the many aspects of climate change and how it's affecting our world. She had been teaching a course on this and finally decided, I'd really like to share this knowledge with the public. I found it very accessible on simply building your knowledge base. I also highly recommend finding a way to think through how your particular passions and cares in the world might be activated to respond in some way, to engage in active hope in this world. The BTS Center has partnered with Peterson Toscano, who also is our amazing producer for this podcast, in offering a resource that you can bring into your own community. It's a workshop called Pursuing Our Passions in a Climate-Changed World. It comes with video resources and a facilitator's guide so that you can actually facilitate a conversation on what matters and how can we tap into that to address climate change in some way. Peterson, you are often with us behind the scenes, but I wonder if you might share another way people might take action. Yeah, well, after hearing that conversation, I know what my next step is. It's to order Dr. Varanis Miles' book. As I was listening to Varanis, she mentioned love for our neighbor as a central part of our faith today. In a climate change world with extreme weather events forcing people from their homes, loving our neighbor becomes a powerful form of climate action. So here is a meaningful, practical next step for your own household and your neighbors. Create 72-hour kits. According to Ready.gov, after an emergency, you may need to survive on your own for several days. Being prepared means having your own food, water, and other supplies to last for several days. A disaster supply kit is a collection of basic items your household may need in the event of an emergency. And they provide a nice list of the basics. 
They also suggest that once you look at the basic items, you should consider what unique needs your own family might have, such as supplies for pets or, or seniors. Doing this also is great for kids because it gives them this real notion like, okay, we're doing something, we're preparing. That creates a lot of comfort. Creating a 72-hour kit for a neighbor is a practical way of showing love while building community. It will also help you to learn more about your neighbor as you talk to them about what they would like in their own kit. Learn more at ready.gov slash kit. That's ready.gov slash kit. And thank you, Ben and Nicole, for such a stimulating conversation. Thank you for listening to this special edition of Spirit in Action. You heard the Climate Change Podcast hosted by Nicole Deeroff and Ben Yashua Davis. The episode I shared with you is entitled, If I Can't Make a Difference, Then What Do I Do? It featured Dr. Varanis Miles. To see full show notes of this episode and to learn about the many programs and resources offered through the BTS Center, visit thebtscenter.org. Later this month, they will have their annual convocation in person for the first time since 2019. If you cannot be there physically, they're up in Maine, I will be hosting an online companion convocation that will give participants a chance to get up close and personal to the plenary speakers as well as to hear their talks. We'll also have unique online programming for you. Visit thebtscenter.org. And subscribe to Climate Change Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Season 2 premieres September 26, 2023. Now, back to Mark Helps Me. Thanks to Peterson Toscano, along with Ben and Nicole, for guest hosting today. And thank you all for your work making this world better and helping find the resources that can get us where we need to go. We've got the links on NordenSpiritRadio.org to help you connect up, and I'll be hosting next week. See you then for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song. 